Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 179. Today is March 19th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, in today's episode, I want to talk to you about trading methods that you can use to time the market and in particular, what you can use for the S&P 500 to know that you're in an uptrend and to move in and out of it. In particular, I'm going to highlight the 100-day moving average because I think that's especially important when you're dealing with a major index like the S&P 500. What I'm going to discuss today is relevant to the market that we're in, although we're really looking at it in retrospect because the market's been up over these past five or six weeks. So some of these things I'm going to be discussing are things that, you know, you could have done in the, in the past. But the reason I'm bringing them up now is because some people have asked, why haven't I talked about this? And so I'm using this as a reference episode that you can go back and listen to again when we are in another uptrend to use this as, as a guide for, you know, a timing mechanism to get into the market. I'm also going to finish this up with one of the reasons why I'm sitting on the sidelines. You know, one of the reasons I didn't discuss these techniques as we've gone in these past five or six weeks into this uptrend is that I've been sitting out of it. There are a number of reasons why that's the case. It has a lot to do with risk management, risk mitigation, things about alpha. Bottom line on all this is, is that I believe that the uptrend that we've seen, particularly these last three weeks, is really related to oil prices. I think oil prices are currently overbought. I think that mostly has to do with what we've heard come out of OPEC and also with Russia, possible negotiations they may be having. OPEC is having a big meeting next month. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, I think at this point, this is all talk. I don't think it's action. And it's also based on the very hard, realistic facts of where we sit with oil production, how much oil is in current storage, and what the likely demand is for that oil over the next 6 to 12 months. Incidentally, this week, the Federal Reserve did what they've traditionally been doing since, you know, we've been in this post-recession um, supposed recovery where each year they come out and tell us that next year we're going to hit escape velocity and the economy is doing just wonderful and it'll be time to raise interest rates, yada, yada, yada. And then, oh, by the way, they come back out and they keep making revisions to previous GDP estimates and they always move them down. So last year, they were predicting that this year would be growing at 2.4%, which was a revision lower than what they had previously estimated. Just this week, they came out and they lowered that down to 2.2%. Now, they may be sandbagging. They may want to come back later in the year and say, oh, we actually exceeded growth estimates. But think about it. Whether we grow at 2.1 or 2.5, we are about seven years into this recovery coming out of the greatest recession that we've seen since the Great Depression. The stock market is in a seven-year bull market. We've just recently, over the, over the past month or so, seen the S&P rise about 12%. We have over $3 trillion being spent from the federal government, and that's a deficit of somewhere each year between, say, $400 billion to a $1 trillion of deficit spending, you know, over and above the, the tax revenues that they're brought in. We've had the Federal Reserve's balance sheet over that same period of time go from about $800 billion to now where we're sitting at somewhere in the range of $3.5 trillion. And with all that spending, with all that appreciation in the stock market, 
with a collapse in oil and commodity prices that you would think would fuel consumption. With all that going on, our economy can barely grow at 2%. And this is nothing new. If you go back to the year 2000 or so, you'll see that our average annual GDP growth over the last 16 years or so has really only been at about 1.9%. This is a systemic problem. It's a global problem. It's not going away overnight. We are in the midst of a global secular stagnation. The world economies are growing at an anemic pace. And despite all that, the S&P 500 is near its record high. Now, I'm not being chicken little here. I'm not afraid about an economic meltdown or a collapse. And I know, particularly based on the last episode that I did, I heard from many people thinking that I sound like I'm extremely pessimistic. And that's not it at all. What I'm trying to say is that the market and the economies, they move in a business cycle. We are at a seven-year run of an overinflated business cycle right now. And we're in the tail end of over 30 years of interest rates coming down to where they point now that in our country, they're virtually at zero. In other developed nations, they're in negative numbers. I don't think the markets are going to collapse. I don't think the gold is going to skyrocket to $12,000 an ounce. If we go through some type of hyperinflation, then there's not going to be anywhere to hide. The shadow that would be cast from a U.S. meltdown will not be mitigated simply because you've stored $5,000 in physical gold in some vault or depository in Australia. Okay, that's not going to help you. And as I say, I think something like that occurring in the near term is extremely unlikely. I'm simply worried that we're at the end of a business cycle that's way long in the tooth, that's gone beyond all but one of the business cycles that we have on historic record. So we're in the second longest in history. It's long in the tooth. It's not justified by the fundamentals. And I believe that any of the shocks that are on the horizon or could be seen in the foreseeable future could melt down this market just like Nothing more than talk has promoted this market over the last six weeks because OPEC has stated that they're going to try to cap production. That little bit of talk has raised the market since about February 11th. It's put it up close to 12-13% from the bottoms on nothing more than a discussion around capping oil production. So this is a very vulnerable market. It's a very headline-driven market. And any real threat or a fear of a threat, a rumor of a threat, any type of shockwave that could cause corporate earnings to further decline or could depress global growth or could affect and have a negative impact on the energy sector or on the major currencies, any of those things could cause a meltdown in this market. We've seen where there's no support for this market until you get down to around 1820 on the S&P 500. So I remain cautious. I remain skeptical. I think that those low levels that we saw in February and in January of this year and looking back to September and August of last year, I think that those values could easily be tested. And for now, that's why I'm biding my time. But you know what? I'm digressing here. This is not what I wanted to talk about. Let's get back on track. Let's talk about some of the indicators that you can use to time the market and some of the things you, you could have been looking at over the past couple of weeks and some things that you can look at going forward to help you decide whether or not it's time to get back into the market. 
I'm going to be specifically referring to the S&P 500 as I go through these examples. This would work with any index, any ETF, a particular stock, anything like that. But for our example, I'm going to stick to the S&P 500 because it's, it's so ubiquitous. And incidentally, if I was just starting out or if I had a smaller portfolio, what I would focus on trading would be the S&P 500. I'd do that through the ETF SPY. It's the most liquid ETF in the world. You have diversification across 500 companies. It's easy to track. There's a long history about it. So if I had only one equity I could invest in, it would be SPY and I'd focus on the S&P 500. So let's jump into it and let's literally start at the bottom. Pull up a chart of the S&P 500 or you can look at SPY. SPY is a, a derivative of the S&P 500. It doesn't exactly image it. It's roughly a tenth of the value of the S&P 500. So the numbers I'm using are going to be from the raw S&P 500 numbers as opposed to the SPY. But I think you can still follow along with me and it is easy enough to pull up a chart of the true S&P 500. So go ahead and follow along with me. Let's go back to the most recent low that we've had in the market and that day was achieved on February 11th. Now, if you were lucky, extremely lucky, or if you were clairvoyant, you could have bought into the market that day because that's the lowest we've seen the market hit in about two years. But let's assume that you're not lucky and that you're not clairvoyant. How would you have known that that was the lowest point in the market? Well, you wouldn't. And that's the whole point. Investing in the stock market is about estimating probabilities and then mitigating and managing risk. And so the way we do that is we track the market from day to day. We look at what its intraday pricings are, what the high is, what the low is. We compare that to what's happened in the past, you know, over the, over the uh, past few weeks, over the past few months, even as much as the past few years. By looking at the past history, we can have some idea of where the market may be headed. We have no idea where it's definitely headed. That's why I say it's about estimating probabilities. So on February 11th, you could have looked at the market. That day had the lowest intraday low for, like I say, something like going back to about two years prior to that. That's a really negative sign in terms of you can see how far the market had fallen just over the previous few weeks and months. It had basically wiped out all of the gains that had been made since 2014. You want to be concerned in a meltdown like that because although you can assume that maybe you're at the bottom and it can't go any lower, don't ever fall into that misconception because the price can always go lower. That's called trying to catch a falling knife and it's a good way to get your fingers cut off. So what do we do in a situation like that? How do we know when we're at the bottom of the market? Well, the only way we can know is for us to wait and see if the market goes any lower. And so a very good way to determine that is to use Bill O'Neill's method. And Bill O'Neill is the founder of Investor's Business Daily. He's the author of How to Make Money in Stocks. One of his methods to determining when you're coming off of a bottom is to wait at least four days for the market to appreciate. That's four trading days. And so on February 11th, the market had an intraday low, lower than it had in any of the previous weeks, but it did close up above that bottom. So that at least was a positive sign that maybe an intraday low had been put in. And the days I'm referring to, incidentally, are not calendar days, but they're trading days. So we're talking about four trading sessions. So you could count February 11th as day one because intraday it did close above that bottom. 
on February 12th. It also closed above that low that was made on February 11th. That was a Friday. We went into the weekend, February 16th. The market also closed that day above where it had been on February 11th. Incidentally, I, I failed to mention, but on Friday, February 12th, the S&P 500 had closed above its five-day moving average. So that's showing that it's appreciating. And then on that Monday, it gapped up and closed above its 10-day moving average. Again, that's very good. We're saying that the average price for the past 10 days is lower than where it closed on that Monday. That's a good sign. That shows that you're holding on to an appreciating asset. By the fourth trading session, that would be February 17th, the market was up significantly again that day, well above its 10-day moving average, and about three-quarters of the way to its 50-day moving average from the 10-day moving average. These are all critical points. They're showing that the market's appreciating. It's moving up in the right direction. It's in general moving up in above average volume, which show that people are moving into the market. And then on Friday, Monday, and Tuesday of that week, the market not only closed up high, but it also closed higher than it opened that day. And so these are all signs of strength showing positive momentum that the market is headed up. Now, you could have tried to jump in there on that first Friday when it broke above its five-day moving average. You could have jumped in on Monday when it broke up above its 10-day moving average. Those are all possible entries into the market, but they could be premature, and that's why I like taking Bill O'Neill's advice of waiting at least four days to make sure that you're up above the bottom. Now, that's not a fail-safe method, but it improves your chance. Remember, the farther you are from the bottom, the lower the probability that you're going to make another low. Of course, consequently, if you wait too long, then you're giving up all your earnings. And so a four-day wait is a pretty good trade-off. But you have to be willing to not only wait those four days to get in, you have to also be willing to exit your position should your trade fall apart. And one of the reasons I wanted to use the S&P 500 uh, to describe this is because this is very easy to see with the double bottom that we had during this last downtrend. If you go back to January 20th, and for any of you listening out into the future, I'm talking about January 20th, 2016, that was another day where we had a significant bottom, and it was almost as low as the low that we saw on February 11th. And so if you thought that that was the bottom, you'd have been counting your four days, and you may have decided to jump back into the market on January 25th. Now, that was actually a day of high volatility. It was a day when the market actually closed lower than it opened, and it actually fell back down below both its 10 and its five-day moving average. So that may have been a warning sign to you to hold off, but theoretically, you could have perhaps still gotten into the market at that point. But had you done that, you wouldn't have bought at the bottom because, remember, the bottom wasn't put in until about three weeks later on February 11th. And so just to be safe and just to manage and mitigate risk, you would have wanted to exit your position by at least February 8th because that's when the market closed lower than the close on January 20th, which, was had, which had been the previous low day. So there's an example of where you could have gotten in four days after what you thought might have been a low, stayed in for about another week and a half, and then exited your position when it looked like that rally was falling apart. That would have kept you out of the market for the next three days when the actual low was put in on February 11th. And then, of course, you just sat out for the next three or four sessions until you got those four days in to come up off the bottom. Now, again, I know I'm talking about a lot of numbers here. 
If you're interested in this, definitely bring up the chart and look at what was going on with the S&P 500 and follow along with me. You'll see it's really not that complicated. You potentially could have gotten in the market on February 17th. That would have been around 1925, 1926 or so on the S&P 500. There were some ups and downs along the next few trading sessions, but by the time we got through February and into March 1st, you can see that the S&P 500 was acting very well. It was clearly bouncing up above its 50-day moving average, which is a very key sign. The close in the S&P 500 was not only above its 50-day moving average, but both the 10- and the 5-day moving average also had cleared and moved up above that 50-day moving average price. If you'd been listening to the Wellsteading podcast, you'd also heard me say that I believe and have believed for a long time that the new baseline for this market, the personality of this market, was to probably revolve up and down around the 1950 level on the S&P 500. Well, on March 1st, you were clearly above that midpoint. It closed that day somewhere around, let's call it 1978. So these are all good points. The market is above its 5-day moving average. It's above its 10-day moving average. Both the 5 and the 10 are above their 50-day moving average. The overall market's above its 50-day moving average. And you're above the 1950 base level that I've been estimating for the market. These are all good points. Now, road was a little bumpy. It didn't go straight up from there. There were several down days in between. But for the most part, over those next three weeks, the market has performed extremely well. It stayed above its 10-day moving average. That's always an extremely positive sign. It did dip a little bit below its 5-day, but again, the market's never going to go all the way up. And you can look at the S&P 500 and see that it does correlate very well with this 10-day moving average. Oftentimes, it'll close or, uh, on that 10-day moving average, it'll, or it'll, the intraday low will hit that 10-day moving average, and it'll bounce up from there. That's showing that it's getting support on its 10-day moving average. That's very important that you can find that type of a relationship. Likewise, when the market breaks down and falls down below that 10-day moving average, you'll see that it acts as resistance, and you'll see that the S&P 500 just can't get above that 10-day moving average, or if it does, it doesn't stay up above it very long. It's my experience with the 10-day moving average and the S&P 500 um, that we've had over at least the last six months or so that it acts better as support than it does as resistance. That's the personality of the market. That's going to be different for different stocks, for different equities or different ETFs. And also, it'll be different over different periods of time. So what may hold up for three months or so would be one personality. You may see then a shift in that personality and a change. And going forward, you'll have to look for a different type of correlation. So all these things are very positive signs. These are all entry points that you could have made to get into the S&P 500. Two more that I want to mention is that on March 11th, the S&P 500 got up and started hitting resistance at its 200-day line. The 200-day moving average is always a strong correlation for both support and resistance. And the S&P 500 struggled for about three or four days to break significantly above that level. But it did do that this past Wednesday, which incidentally was when the Federal Reserve came out with their press release after the FOMC meeting, and they said that they were going to keep interest rates steady and that, you know, they were walking back their previous statements that there maybe would be four increases this year and maybe there'd only be two. The market liked that. They like any type of easing or dovish monetary policy. 
So the market performed well on that Wednesday and ended up closing out the week just under 2050. Again, these are all positive signs. The fact that the S&P is above its 200-day moving average is very encouraging. The last four or five sessions, it stayed above its five-day moving average, and it's been above its 10-day moving average for about seven or eight sessions. These are all extremely positive signs. And in fact, the S&P 500 has not closed below its 10-day moving average since February 16th. Very, very positive sign. So these are all very simple ways of using simple moving averages, the 5-day, the 10-day, the 50, and the 200, to help you determine whether you're in an appreciating market or a depreciating market. Just a way to help you gauge whether momentum is with you and the market's moving up or whether the market's moving down. Remember that over 70% of stocks are going to follow the general trend. And so if you can determine that the S&P 500 is moving up and staying above its 10-day moving average for a month or more, well, that's a pretty good indication that at least three-quarters of all the other stocks are also doing the same thing. It doesn't guarantee success, but it does help you mitigate risk. And to paraphrase what they say in the Hunger Games, it helps you know that the odds are moving in your favor. Now I want to take a step back here too and also mention something that was unique to the downturn that we've just come through and I want to step back from the specific moving averages and I want to talk about actual chart patterns. Again, if you pull up a chart of the S&P 500, you're going to see that a double bottom was made in January and February. The first bottom was made January 20th, the second bottom was made February 11th. Now we didn't know until after we got past those periods that these bottoms were made. And that's why I say that, you know, charts and technical analysis, it can't predict the future for you, but it can tell you where you've come from. Now this pattern was eerily similar to what, to the double bottom that we also saw in August and September of 2015. They're very symmetrical and almost near identical other than the magnitude. And what worries me about that is that this bottom that we saw in February was lower than those bottoms we saw back in August and September. So that's a concern to me. I'm not going to dwell on that at this point. But pull up a chart. Look at that double bottom that was made. It looks like a W. And the apex of that middle of the W, the, the high point and the little V that's made in the middle of the W, that's a critical point whenever you're coming off of a double bottom because that's a good place to look for a buy point. I'm not going to get into all the reasons why that's uh, the case in this episode, but for now, just trust me, that's a very good entry point when you're coming off of a double bottom. The high on that midpoint of the apex on the middle of the W. In this most recent double bottom, that occurred on February 1st, and that high was right around 1937. That value was hit again on about the seventh day after the bottom that was put in on February 11th. So if you were a little bit gun-shy and you didn't want to get into the market on the fourth session following the, uh, the bottom on February 11th, you could have waited to the 7th when the market got up around 1947. Excuse me, I think back a minute ago I said 19, I think, that, I, think I said the high was 1937. That, that's wrong. That's about what it opened at. The midpoint high on February 1st would have actually been a little bit above 1947 on the S&P 500. That level was exceeded on February 22nd. Again, that was about seven trading sessions 
after we saw the market bottom out on February 11th, so that could have also been a very good time to enter into this market. Now, the market did stumble the next two sessions after that, but it did gap up and exceed that 1947 level on February 25th, and that's also the day that the market broke out above its 50-day moving average. Again, if you were being very patient and looking for some more reassurance, you could have waited till then to get in the market because you were above that midpoint on the double bottom. You were about 14 or 15 days off the bottom that was made on February 11th, and the market was also above its 50-day moving average. Notice that everything I'm talking about is trying to improve your odds and mitigate risk and to keep the bottom falling out from under you. You can't predict the actual lowest point in the market, and so you want to wait and bide your time and look for signs that the market is telling you that it's moving up and not moving down. Buying into the market on around February 25th when it was above its 50-day moving average and had exceeded that midpoint high from the double bottom base could have been a very conservative point when to enter this market. And incidentally, on that particular day, the market closed right around 1951, which again was pretty much right at that base point of where I think the personality of this current S&P 500 is. Now, one other point on the chart that you could have used as another alternative entry into this market would have occurred on March 1st. This is when the S&P 500 closed right about halfway between its 50 and 200-day moving average. That's a secondary note. The primary reason why you might have wanted to enter into the market on that particular day was because that's when the market closed above the midpoint from the recent peak to trough chart pattern. And what I mean by that is if you go back either on November 3rd or November 4th, that's the day that we had the highest close since the market flash crashed in August. So that was a failed attempt on the counter trend rally. Since September 29th, the market had been going up and it peaked out on November 3rd. On that day, the S&P 500 closed right around 2110. From that point, the market kept making lower highs, lower lows, until we got to the ultimate low on February 11th. That was the ultimate intraday low, and the S&P 500 ended up closing on February 11th right around 1829. So if you take that November 3rd peak of around 2110 and the closing bottom on February 11th around 1829, that gives you the high peak and the low trough. And if you look for the midpoint between those two extremes, you can calculate a midpoint of about 1969 and a half, or for our purposes, we'll call it 1970. So 1970 on the S&P 500 would be about the midpoint between the most recent peak all the way down to the most recent trough. Well, when was that 1970 point bridged? Right around March 1st when the S&P 500 was sitting squarely halfway between its 50-day and 200-day moving average. So again, that could have been another alternate point when, if you were being very conservative, you could have bought into the market at that point. And again, you could have seen the personality of the market. It had been closing up above its 10-day moving average for about the previous two weeks. And if you were gotten in anywhere around that 1970 point, as of today, you would have a gain of around 4%. You know, that's more than twice the return that you're going to get buying a 10-year treasury. You could have made that money over the past three weeks and then just sold out on Friday and sat out the rest of the year and have made a guaranteed 4% return for 2016. You don't get rich by doing that, 
but you do lock in your profits. It's a way to mitigate your risk and keep ahead of inflation and other types of transaction costs when you're in a very turbulent and uncertain market like we're in today. So that's why I prefer swing trading as opposed to buy and hold. I'm not sure how many buy points we currently talked about. I think there was probably five or six different entry points that we just talked about over the last six weeks when you could have gotten into this market and picked up a two, four, maybe 6% gain. But now having said all that, I want to step back and take a little different view, a more pessimistic view, and tell you why I didn't do that. I chose not to buy into this market during those five or six different opportunities that I just talked to you about. And I did it for several reasons, but the, the main reason that I want to highlight in this episode has to do with the 100-day moving average. Now, I generally don't look at the 100-day moving average, but I do think it's a key trend line that you should watch when you're looking at the general market and the S&P 500 in particular. I've talked about this a lot. So if you're a long-time listener to the Wealth Studying Podcast, you know what I'm talking about. You know there's blog posts about it over on uh, my firm's website, investablewealth.com. I think if you search over there or you Google, the title of that blog post was something like Swing Trading in One Chart. You'll see what I'm talking about in terms of the S&P 500 and how it correlates to the 100-day moving average. In the particular chart uh, that I used in that blog post, I was showing the 20-week average, but that's in a sense the same thing as the 100-day moving average. We're basically talking about a six-month moving average, just a simple moving average. The reason that's so critical, the reason that's so important, is if you go back over the last 15, even 20 or 30 years and look at the S&P 500, you'll see that if you only bought into the S&P 500 when it was above that 100-day moving average, you would have stayed out of every catastrophic loss that occurred. You'd have missed the dot-com bubble. You'd have missed the recession in uh, 2002, 2003. You'd have missed the recession and the housing bubble of 2008. And in more recent times, it would have kept you out of the Ebola uh, panic or scare that we had in October of 2014. It would have kept you out of the flash crash and the double bottom base that we had in August and September of 2015. And then obviously it would have kept you out of this most recent double bottom that we saw in January and February. The S&P 500 correlates extremely well to the 100-day moving average on a 30,000-foot very broad level. And, and when I say that, I mean if you only invest in the S&P 500 when you're above that, you'll find yourself taking part in the uptrends, and if you get out of it when it drops down below that level, you'll avoid any catastrophic loss. Now, it doesn't maximize profits for you. It isn't as aggressive as some of these other techniques that we just talked about. Those are all entry points when you can more maximize your profit, but they also offer more risk. The best way to ensure that you're not going to have a catastrophic loss is to not jump into the S&P 500 until after it's above its 100-day moving average. It's a very conservative approach to take, but I can tell you over my 30 years of investing in the market and the long-term history that I've studied of the market, it's a very solid and good technique. You won't get rich quick overnight doing that method, but you also won't find yourself in a catastrophic loss like many of you found yourselves in in 2008. 
I bring all this up because one of the reasons that I've not jumped back into this market, now it's not the only reason, it's not necessarily the primary reason, but it has been a significant and crucial point that I've taken into consideration and, and something that I've very much filtered all the other information through, and that's been that the S&P 500 has really not gotten solidly above its 100-day moving average, which incidentally sitting right around 1998. It didn't get above that until March 11th. That's only six trading sessions ago. That was Friday before last. Up till that point, the market had been below its 100-day moving average. All this year, other than for a few sessions when it was trying to break through and was hitting resistance at right around March 4th and 5th, it was hitting resistance at the 100-day. And the 100-day and is relatively flat. It's been right around that 1999, 2000, 1998 level. It's been sitting that way flat for quite some time. The market didn't break out above that until Friday before last. That's March 11th, about six trading sessions ago. To me, that was really the safest point to enter this market, given the fact that we just went through a double bottom base January, February, and then a double bottom base during the flash crash of August, September, the fact that we're 17 months of decrease in corporate earnings, the fact that we're in a global slowdown, yada, 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 all the other fundamental reasons that concern me, the concern that I have that we might be seeing a false flag in the recent increase in oil prices, the fact that it looks like this market has rolled over, that it's seven years into a rally that we hit that high point back last, you know, June or July of 2015. And then since then, We've had lower highs and lower lows. It looks to me like we're in a counter trend rally. I really didn't want to push things until we got above that 100-day moving average. So why didn't I buy in on March 11th? Well, I'll finish up on this one final thought. Let's say that I'd bought into the S&P 500 on March 11th and I got in at 2,000 points. Well, the all-time high that we hit on this market back early summer of 2015 was right around 2130. And so the difference between the all-time record high of 2130 and my entry point on March 11th of around 2000 is only about 6.5%. Now, I know that someday we're going to get above that 2130. We'll break out to all new highs. The sky is ultimately the limit. I'm not chicken little. I'm not worried about a meltdown. I'm confident that over the long run, the S&P 500 will get well above 2130. But I'm not confident that that's going to occur in the near future. And so I look at my probable upside of 2130, and I don't think it's likely that we're going to get above that in the next three or six months. Again, there's a lot of ways I can look at that and come up and rationalize that decision. One simple way is to just look at valuations. For the market to get up to 2130, we'd be looking at a price per earnings ratio of something close to 18 times earnings if the S&P 500 can actually get up to about $120 a share earnings, which is what they're forecasting for this year. Now, remember, last year they were forecasting $130 per earning, and the market came in around $105 or $106. So we came nowhere close to hitting what they were projecting. I'm skeptical that we'll hit anywhere near $120 this year, but if we did, that would put the valuation up at around 17 and three quarters or 18 times earnings. Now that's not extreme, but for the market that we're in, for all the uncertainties, for all the shocks to the system that could occur, I think that's pretty pricey. 
And if you step back and say, well, what if we don't have any earnings appreciation? What if oil prices do stay lower and we continue to see a drag on the energy sector and all the other problems that we had last year? What if that continues into this year? And what if we only make, say, $105 like we did in 2015? Well, that's going to put the valuation in excess of 20 times earnings. Those are pretty rich valuations. I don't think the current uncertainty and market conditions can justify those. But even if they did, that would put my profit potential at about 6.5% above an entry point at the 100-day moving average. I don't think those are very good odds when I consider the fact that just a couple weeks ago, we were down below 1810 on the S&P 500. And I think that the market is just as likely to go back down to the 1800s as it is to go up to 2100. Those odds are not in my favor. And that's why right now I'm choosing to be very conservative and perhaps a lot more conservative than many of you are, but that's okay. Listen, the purpose of this podcast is not to give you advice or recommendations. It's simply for me to tell you what I'm doing, to share my experiences with you, to help you to think for yourself, to hopefully make you a better investor. I might be more conservative than you. I perhaps could be older than you. But I'll tell you what, I've lived through a lot of market ups and downs. I've worked hard to build and earn the level of wealth I'm at right now, and I jealously protect it. We're at a richly priced market right now. We've priced in perfection, and I think we have a bumpy road ahead of us. Now, as I've said before, I do think there's going to be some excellent opportunities to make money. But for now, I'm biding my time, and you're just going to have to come back and listen to future episodes to see how things are working out for me. So, hey, until the next episode, thanks for joining me. This is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.